0: The News power
1: hour yeah it's Monday the 29th of November we got an hour of power coming up for you with all the big stories of the day. With me in this virtual studio, Nadia Swart and Justin Rowe-Roberts. You'll hear from them uh, just in a little while. Big story of today, though, is what's happening to people's holiday plans. Unfortunately, we've got no good news to give you. We do know that British Airways will be flying people into South Africa tomorrow, but whether they'll be able to go back to the UK without going through um, massive quarantines, or indeed, if the Brits will allow... The British Airways planes to actually land in the UK from South Africa is still a very open question. So Ramaphosa is doing his best, so is the International Affairs Minister, Naledi Pandor. But it does appear as though there's some real, uh, well, overreaction, knee jerks from. People in the Western world, Nadia, you have actually just published a piece by Paul Sullivan, who is furious <laughs> about what's going on so with, angry, the, with but the travel ban.
2: I don't blame him. I mean, all his children are overseas; they haven't seen each other for two years, and now, like, on top of like the emotional, you know, pain which I'm sure he's going through because you want to see your kids that you haven't seen for so long. There's the cost, the hotels, the flights, and it happened like this, so. Frustrated, very frustrated, but with, with good reason.
1: It was funny. On Thursday when Jeremy uh, Maggs came into our studio, He the first thing he said to me was, what do you think about the new virus? And I thought he was joking. I'd seen something on uh, Daily Mail in the UK, which is not really a source that you'd like to uh, quote too often. And, of course, uh, I was the one who was just out of touch. Uh, Jeremy was right on it, and as a newsman, you'd expect him to be. And now it's it's just gone all over the world. Good, though, last night, I'm sure, Justin, you were quite happy to see that Cyril Ramaphosa did not suddenly jack up uh, everything in South Africa. So we had to go back into a, a lockdown level three, four, or who knows, even five.
3: I think everyone in the broader economy was happy when Cyril did come um, speak last night and say what he did, which was very little in terms of changing the restrictions. I think we at the at an inflection point here where we're actually not able to lock down the economy further. It's been such a tough 18 months and things aren't going well um, from a small to medium business perspective. And switching off the economy again could hurt millions of livelihoods.
1: Well, the strange thing is that Business for South Africa, which is run by bankers, have decided that they are going to call for mandatory vaccines. And if you want to get a South African angry, tell him to do something. I think that's, uh, well, it'll be interesting to see. I guess in Australia they would have got it right, perhaps New Zealand, but they do it in this country, it's going to be a bit of an uphill struggle. However, does it, is it legal? And we will find out later from Elsa B. Klink, who is a former legal advisor to the SA Medical Association. He spoke with our colleague Chris Bateman. Also coming up in the program tonight, I had a fascinating discussion with Yaki Silia. He is the uh, head of the Institute for Security Studies. He wrote a book called Fate of the Nation in 2017, where he predicted much of what's happening now on the political front. So I got some insights from him Uh, which we've given you the highlights of this evening in the Power Hour on exactly what coalition governments are going to be like and what it means for 2024 and indeed uh, 2029. When he wrote his book at the time, there was no action essay. So I've got his insights on that as well, whether Herman Mashaba could become President Mashaba one day. Also coming up later, you had a good talk, as you always do on a Monday, Justin, with David Shapiro.
3: Always good to catch up with David at the beginning of the week. We did touch on the new variant and how that will affect markets. David is of the opinion that markets will blow it over. It seems that the data coming out of this weekend is that symptoms-wise, it is mild, although it might be transmissible. There are no real heavy symptoms. Uh, as a result, markets should shrug it over, according to Shapsi.
1: Also on the business side today, uh, one of the uh, many fantastic GPs that we have in South Africa, Uh, Dr. Sherry Fanneroff has written a piece which she sends to her patients, and she's allowed us to republish, and it's all you want to know about Omicron. Uh, It really is a a good piece with 10 um, relevant questions. I'd urge you to go along to the site to go and read that one. Coming up later in the Power Hour tonight, uh, David Williams, a journalist, now researcher, wrote a fantastic paper Uh, for the Brenthurst Foundation on Praza, the Public Rail Association of South Africa. So he gives us some insights into what's going on at Praza, why it's in such a mess, and why the CEO, who was appointed just a few months ago, has been put on gardening leave. And uh, then also in the program tonight, we'll be hearing from our partners at the Financial Times in London. Uh, They've got some insights into the new variant of COVID-19. And remind us that Ghislaine Maxwell, the partner of the not-so-happily-departed Jeffrey Epstein, the uh, sex fiend, is going on trial today, and it is anticipated that there will be uh, interesting stuff coming out of that trial, where she perhaps will tell all. Epstein... Uh, was in jail. He was jailed about two years ago when, where he committed suicide. So up to now, his secrets have gone with him to the grave. We'll hear more about all of that in the next hour. Before, let's pick up with the market report. RightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Nadia Sartre has the news headlines.
2: The near global ban on travel to and from South Africa over fears of the Omicron variant has left the local hospitality industry reeling. Not only has it done untold damage to many local businesses that would have benefited from tourism over the festive season, but its sudden onset has also left South Africans abroad stranded. The Department of International Relations and Cooperation is working on getting stranded citizens home, but this is proving to be a challenge as flights have been suspended. South Africans have been left stranded in many European countries and even Mauritius. Many others are stuck at home after making plans to visit family abroad. International investors in the rail sector in South Africa have threatened to disinvest from the country because of the mess at the Passenger Rail Agency of South Africa, The government has warned that international players are ready to close up shop in South Africa as Prasa has failed to get its affairs in order, including contracts and tenders and cutting back on its wasteful and irregular spending. The companies looking to leave are involved in overhaul contracts, but Prasa has failed to issue any, meaning there is little reason for these companies to stick around. South Africa stands to lose billions of rands in investment. And South African Airways' chosen strategic equity partner, the Takatsu Consortium, has confirmed that the due diligence process to buy a 51% stake in the state-owned flag carrier is now complete and no material issues were identified. SAA, which was in business rescue from December 2019 to April 2021, started domestic commercial flights again on the 23rd of September. The state-owned airline stopped commercial flights in May last year when the rescue practitioners indicated that there were insufficient funds to continue with commercial operations. According to Takatsu, it is not yet involved in the running of SAA. The consortium says negotiations with SAA shareholder, the Department of Public Enterprises are continuing. Minister of Public Enterprises Pravin Gordon told Bloomberg that government expects to conclude the Takatsu deal early next year. And now it's back to Justin for the market report. Thanks,
3: Nods. The JSU all share index is up at sixty-nine thousand eight hundred. In the currency markets, the rand is flat against all the major currencies: to sixteen rand eighteen cents to the dollar, twenty-one rand fifty-six cents to the pound, and eighteen rand twenty-four cents to the euro. Gold is lower at one thousand seven hundred ninety-two dollars an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around thirty and a half thousand rand. Brent crude is up, trading at seventy-five dollars seventy cents a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back nine hundred and twenty-five thousand rand. In the financial news, Impala Platinum has launched a buyout offer for the shares in Peer Royal Buffer King Platinum that doesn't already own, valuing the miner at more than 43 billion rand. Implants is seeking a controlling stake in Royal Buffer King, CEO Nikki, Nico Muller said in a media call on Monday, eyeing a raft of benefits from the tie-up and having already inked deals for almost a quarter of its shares. The cash and share offer of 150 rand represents an 80% premium to Royal Buffer King's 30-day volume-weighted price average before October 27 when the two parties had
1: announced they were in talks. This daily market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your
4: life changes. Today is Monday, November 29th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The new coronavirus variant is rattling financial markets. UK regulators might reverse a tech acquisition made last year. Plus, Iranian diplomats will sit down with Western counterparts to talk about its nuclear program and sanctions. Iran wants a guarantee from the US that it would never again
5: leave the agreement.
4: Our correspondent will give us the view from Iran. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. This week, financial markets are likely to be focused on, once again, the pandemic. Several governments reimposed travel restrictions late last week after scientists in South Africa discovered the new coronavirus Omicron variant. Major global stock indices dropped on Friday, and nervous investors poured money into safe havens like gold. Now, it's unclear how contagious the new variant is. FT Pharmaceuticals reporter Donato Paolo Mancini has been speaking to the World Health Organization and other public health experts who say Omicron appears to be more transmissible than the Delta variant. And it has
6: some mutations, some characteristics that suggest it could evade natural immunity and vaccine-afforded immunity. So that means the vaccines that we have right now are probably less efficacious against it. That doesn't mean that that's the case for sure, there are studies underway, but global health authorities are quite concerned about it because anything that is more easily transmissible than Delta, anything that is able to pierce through vaccinations would put a severe dent in our plans to sort of re-emerge globally from the pandemic.
4: Donato, what do experts say about precautions like lockdowns and travel restrictions?
6: So uh, travel restrictions, the problem with with variants of concern, and WHO took the unusual step of designating it a variant of concern rather than an intermediate variant of interest on Friday, um, is that once you detect them, it's probably too late. And it's already in the community, and it's spreading pretty wildly. I spoke to Maria Vankarkov, the lead at the WHO for the COVID-19 response. And she said that country should be focusing their efforts on testing in a targeted way, on surveilling the genomic sequences of the tests that are positive in a targeted way. And so, you know, instead of having these blanket measures, they should be probably focusing on making sure that they can find what is already in the country. In a way, and this is what Munker told me, this, you know, quote unquote, could be a January 2020 moment in which we started to find out about coronavirus from its its first outbreak in Wuhan, China, but the moment we started introducing travel restrictions, the virus had already moved, and it was already too late, as you know the waves in in the u s and europe in in April and May and March of two thousand and twenty tell us unfortunately this time around is different we We do have vaccines, and we are going to get drugs soon uh, they are widely available they 're easy to take that appear to still have some significant effect on on, on this variant. But on vaccines, unfortunately, it's still too early to say. Donato Paolo Mancini is the FT's pharmaceutical reporter.
4: Our next story has to do with GIFs. So sorry in advance to everyone who pronounces it. GIFs. We're talking about GIFs, those short animated looping images, because the company formerly known as Facebook, it's now Meta, last year bought the leading GIF platform called Giphy. But in the coming days, UK regulators may try and reverse that deal because of concerns over competition. That's according to FT sources. The UK's Competition and Markets Authority says the deal could allow Meta to block rivals from accessing gifts. And this would be a first for the CMA. It's never tried to reverse a completed tech deal before. Meta has, in the past, accused the UK watchdog of engaging in extraterritorial overreach. The CMA has until December 1st to make a final call. One of Iran's top diplomats is set to meet with Western counterparts this week to restart talks over Iran's nuclear program. Iran says the talks are aimed at lifting the sanctions that were imposed when former President Donald Trump pulled the U.S. out of the nuclear deal. Those economic sanctions have hit Iranians hard. People feel economic pressure on a daily basis. That's our correspondent in Tehran, Najme Bazorgmer. She says there's really high unemployment and food inflation is running at around 60%.
5: This means many people of the middle class are basically falling into the lower class categories in financial terms. They tell me they are eating less or they change neighborhoods because they cannot pay the rents anymore. Of course. All this doesn't mean we see naked poverty in Iran. Social networks are very strong, but I can tell you that even family networks and social networks feel under too much pressure now that maybe they cannot cope with the rising demands of people for
4: food and financial help. Najme says the one thing holding Iran's economy together is oil.
5: That sector has saved Iran under sanctions because Iran can sell non-oil goods to neighbouring countries and can import goods through neighbouring countries. So this is not a country that you think is completely paralysed, but it's not about only daily issues. It's also about the future. People see there is not going to be any development projects, any meaningful progress in the country, which is why many people
4: are thinking of immigration. But these economic pressures haven't affected the way Iranian officials are approaching these nuclear negotiations. Their comments are quite defiant. So what Iran wants
5: from these talks is all sanctions to be lifted before the Islamic Republic rolls back its nuclear advances. Because it says that what the US administration of Donald Trump did by pulling out of the deal at the time Iran was loyal to the terms of the agreement could happen again. Iran wants a guarantee from the US that it would never again leave the agreement.
4: Najme Bazorgmer is the FT's Tehran correspondent. Before we go, another development in the scandal that continues to rock the financial world. Jeffrey Epstein's former girlfriend goes on trial today. Authorities accuse Ghislaine Maxwell of overseeing a network that recruited dozens of underage girls for Epstein to abuse. Maxwell denies committing any crime. Epstein killed himself in a Manhattan prison cell two years ago. Many hope this trial will reveal new details of his relationships and business dealings. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
3: I'm Justin Roberts of Business. and with me for today's Market Insights is Securities' David Shapiro. Lots to ponder over the weekend. The news and subsequent knee-jerk reactions of government to the Omicron variant was rather predictable, with global markets tumbling on Friday. The hysteria has seemed to cool, at least today. Were you buying any Black Friday specials on the stock market, David?
7: I yeah, I was tempted. I was tempted, but... You know you don't want to be silly because we didn't know uh how bad this is i i had a inner feeling that it wasn't because you know just anecdotally uh even though this virus was around there weren't reports of heavy um admit admissions to hospitals or um you know hospitals bursting at their themes it just seemed to uh you know it was normal yes things were picking up so I, I all the time I felt that maybe this was a an, an, an over not an over exaggeration but an overreaction. I still feel at this stage it's it's like that without any kind of medical substance to support what I'm saying. It just doesn't feel as bad as perhaps the other outbreaks have. So yeah, I think I think um we've got a you know we've got reason to feel victimized. <laughs> so, anyway, It's going to happen. This is going to keep on happening.
3: I was scrolling Twitter this morning and I saw a tweet from Mm -hmm. Dave Hazelwood. I think you would be best placed to answer this, David. As an investor, do you ignore virus slash variant news or do you try and keep us at best you can considering what happened to markets on Friday? Does it depend on your time horizon? E.g. long-term investors will largely ignore while short-term traders will pay special attention.
7: Yeah, definitely. I think, I think even March 20, when the markets fell in a heap, I think that anybody who went back in history would know that markets tended to recover very fast. We didn't expect it to recover as fast as it did, but I still believe that medically, even now, we're in far better position. You know, there's so much money has been thrown at the vaccine and so much at this virus that I don't think, you know, it's not difficult to come out uh, with some kind of solution. The only, the only thing we can't control is people's desire to get vaccinated. And that still is the overriding issue. And I think if anything, Justin, if anything has been shown is that until the world is vaccinated, we're not going to be safe. We're going to get these outbursts and we're going to get uh, these inconsistencies.
3: Standard bank trading update looked good this morning trading back to pre-COVID levels. The banks are trading at very cheap multiples. Is this the market trying to say, as a result of fintech and all the innovation, that some of these banks' earnings are not likely to grow over the next few years? And these challenger banks that we're seeing more innovative fintech, technology-driven, they're going to start taking market share away from the big traditional players?
7: Yeah, I'm in that, cap. I think you're right.
3: I think... I. I...
7: They're not exciting businesses, and I think that investors today are looking for exciting businesses. so um, for me um, unless they can do something innovative, you know um, it's going to be very difficult. We're not in the kind of environment where people are splashing out and buying new car. I mean yes there's an element of it, but it's not boom times uh, in this economy and and therefore, um banks will prosper when economies boom when you want to put up new factories when you want to expand your factory buy new machinery you know experiment do things like that that's when i think banks will will do well or when you want to, when there's plenty of MA activity but in this kind of environment it's it's very difficult you know i'm talking specifically in the south african environment i think it's very difficult and i think they'll probably continue to, to trade at these uh, uh, low multiples. <sighs> Justin, it's hard as well. There's another element to it as well. The JSE is, is very thin in volume. You know, I, I monitor it. It just shows you that the level of participation is kind of, just kind of falling away and, and therefore people who bought banks are bought banks. <laughs> I don't think they're going to aggressively go out and seek. And the, and the inflows are not coming in as an economy grows you get more inflows you have to expand your uh, uh, you know your investment horizons that. that's not happening so i think yeah i i yeah you can take a fair share of banks but i'm not sure you're going to get the kind of returns that um you know that people are projecting
3: As you say, David, the local banks are proxies to the economy, which is stagnant, which is not growing. We've seen clothing retailers surprise to the upside in their results in recent weeks. Which industry is more exposed to economic growth and prosperity? Would that be the discretionary retailers or the local banks?
7: (laughs) That's an interesting question. I think the the upside gearing is in the the retailers, Um, mainly because – they hit directly at consumers you know and banks banks can yeah you know, a tech can benefit from consumers it's right it's down at that bottom you know it's down at the at at the lower income levels but i think banks really rely on big industries as much as we as much as we say or alternatively the housing markets you know so 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 the bigger markets so i think that i think that you know your clothing retailers you turn over the clothes we gain into those buy now pay later uh prospects and that which are also very encouraging for retailers because it means yeah you know it means that people are going to be spending more does it help banks i think there's certain banks that are going to go into it. the innovative bank will go into that you know and uh, that, that you know that's where it's going to happen i would imagine capital would be first into those kind of areas you know so you know the clothing retail at the bottom end of the clothing retailer still attractive yeah
3: Interestingly, Impala Platinum going for the jugular, announcing its firm intention in a part cash, part share deal to buy Royal Buffer King. There's been a catfight with Northern Platinum. They recently took a 33% stake of the business. What's your high level take on the announcement and all, all the interest shown in Royal Buffer King?
7: I, I, I'm trying to work it out, you know, and I mean, you know, they're now paying this massive premium, but they're only buying about 23% of it. Maybe they're just waiting on the sides and ready to pounce. And also, I think they need to get rid of their money. You know, that's a bad thing as well, that they, they're building up cash reserves and uh, don't want to go and, you know, not, not don't want to start anything new, which is, which is uh, also not a show of confidence. You know, rather than expanding into a new mine or doing anything, maybe they fear shareholders. So this is an investment. You know, this is an investment in another, in another operation. So it doesn't really add to the economy, you know. It doesn't It doesn't help us anyway. It just helps a royal buffer king uh, get a little richer than that. But I would prefer to see Impala just taking some kind of risks now uh, and 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 starting to expand, create employment, create uh, a new infrastructure somewhere else. Because every every time you sink a shaft, the multiple effect is 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 quite dramatic. You know, I don't think we we understand. That. You know, you, you're creating employment, you're creating um, investment growth. So,
3: David, the S&P 500 is heading for its third consecutive year of 30% returns, yeah. this year at around 26% yeah. year-to-date. In the last 50 years, David, whilst you've been in the market, it's only had one period of double-digit growth four years in a row. Do you think 2022 yeah. is going to be much of the same for equity markets?
7: No. Nah. I think it's going to be a lot harder. Maybe the first few months, but it's going to be tough. And one of the reasons we're seeing this growth is something that we have never witnessed before. Right from the outset of the century, you know, from, the year, from 2000 on, we've had low interest rates, very, vir- virtually zero interest rates. And of course, that's helped equity markets. You know, it hasn't helped. And each time we get out of a crisis, another one's come that's forced us to re- reduce rates again so we had the internet bubble we had uh, you know issues around um 270 708 seven, and now we've had this pandemic as well so for 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 people using the 6040 you know balanced funds it's been it's been terrible you know it's it's it it's been very very difficult so it has favored markets and therefore those who who managed to read this you know have done better but for traditional for you know, conservative investors, traditionalists who have gone 60, 40, you 60, know forty being uh, the amount that you put into bonds or other assets, um, they have underperformed the market. But Justin, I'm I'm setting a very low bar for twenty twenty two. You know, if I can beat inflation, I'm talking in dollar terms, just you know stepping over five or six percent, I'd be thrilled. But not twenty six percent again.
3: L- lastly, uh, David. This new variant, how much of a risk is it to equity markets?
7: No, I don't think so. I, I, I think we've already discounted it. You know, you can, you can sense that it's not serious and um, that 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 it will be uh, controlled. So uh, I'm merely giving you uh, an inner sense, or you know, what would you say, just a a feeling trying to read what we're seeing now. I know the media, you know, they're pumping it up and I'm talking about the American media and even the British, yeah, they're pumping it up, trying to make it, some, trying to get people to come and listen to the stories. But I, I think markets will probably brush it aside and and slowly recover and get back on to uh, you know that upward trajectory that we've seen.
1: Yaki Salia from the Institute of Security Studies is with us. Uh, Yaki, uh, when you wrote your manuscript about the future for South Africa, you unpacked the best possible future would be one where we would have coalitions uh, in the political sphere. Well, what we saw in the local elections appears to have been ahead of everybody's anticipation of when coalition politics would hit South Africa. Whereas the timing might have been different, you certainly were looking ahead to this as a as a prospect for the country.
8: Yeah, look, my forecasts have held up quite well. Um, book was written in um, July of 2017, and I indicated that uh, the ANC um, could would likely lose Gauteng in 2024 and that um, it may emerge as, it may go slightly below 50%, but will still be the dominant party and will rule until 2029. And I think that that forecast has held up quite well. What I um, thought would be the best for South Africa was a stable pro-growth coalition between a reformed uh, ANC and the D- Democratic Alliance. Now, of course, um, That is the only way in which South Africa after 2024 is likely to to gain and retain a degree of stability. I don't think um, that um, one will have to see if the DA and the ANC are prepared to enter into that. But in between that, uh, the 2024 elections and where we are now, there is... uh, um, most important event beyond the release of the Zondu Commission results will be, of course, the ANC's uh, elective conference at the end of 2022. And depending on what happens there, you may find a splintering of the ANC in which the bulk, the rump of the party will stay with Ramaphosa, who I believe will not be unseated. I think he'll stay on as leader of the ANC and president of the country until 2029. But you may have a slight splintering of the party where a faction of the ANC um, uh, hive off and maybe join forces with julius malema and the EFF. i don't think that's a governing um, alliance, but it certainly um, would mean that the ANC would could significantly go, uh, go below the fifty percent but it will still be the majority party in south africa and will be able in my view to be able uh, to, be, to put a governing alliance together until two thousand and twenty nine
1: so where does Action SA come into this picture? They only had a year. They got 16% of the Johannesburg vote and, and good slugs of Shwani and Ukuruleni. Is this not a force to be reckoned with?
8: Action SA is, but it's probably no more than a, a, a regional force in Gauteng for the time being. Um, and the DA has also um, uh, hit a ceiling. So I think that the prospects are for a much more regional um, Division of Power in South Africa, where you could find the DA, uh, the um, Action SA, put together a governing coalition together with the Freedom Front and a few others in Gauteng. In KZN, you may find a resurgent IFP um, take the lead there, depending on who they are prepared to enter into alliances with, and the Cape will stay, I think, solidly DA. Now, once the ANC loses Gauteng, in a sense, its goose is cooked. And the central theme of my book, uh, Fate of the Nation, was this division within the ANC between what I refer to as a reformist faction, led by Ramaphosa, and a traditionalist faction, which is, uh, in a sense, where the EFF and the um, RET faction within the ANC could find themselves. But um, the it, it, it will be a difficult road for all concerned um and uh, the central challenge is that the anc is losing its influence and power in all the important urban centres uh kzn uh, around durban and other areas in Gauteng and uh, and the western cape of course and and on its current trajectory um ramaphosa faces a challenge because he will be in a sense squeezed between losing the urban areas and the rural traditional areas where in one sense, the RET faction support lies um, and where, as I said, the, um, a- the EFF may, may enter into alliance with a faction within the ANC.
1: So what does Ramaphosa do in this circumstance? He's, he has been telling us, or observers have been telling us, that he's playing the long game. What's his long game?
8: Well, his long game is staying in power. Uh, He is at the moment, he he is probably the last ANC president in South Africa. Uh, Also, in accordance with what I uh, wrote about, um, 2029 will see the first chance that an opposition alliance could put together a governing coalition nationally, not before that. So the ANC will remain in power until then. And um, like almost in all Southern Africa, but almost in all African countries, we are slowly seeing the normalization of politics, where um, coalitions, messy coalitions are coming uh, to the front in South Africa and where the country faces, it could be a difficult period, but we, um, we have a different constitutional dispensation. And the courts and civil society and the media have stood up and forced uh, the ANC uh, into um, holding it to account uh, for the damage that it's done to South Africa over the recent years.
1: You say messy coalitions. In history, is that what happens when you do go into an era of coalition politics that nobody really knows uh, how it's going to work out? You have all kinds of bits. And and, and in that context, Mm -hmm. I'd love to get your thoughts on... Something like the Patriotic Alliance, which has now gotten together, a small party, um, put together by perhaps entrepreneurial politicians, uh, gotten together with the ANC, backed what appears to be a losing horse, but it's given them uh, disproportionate power uh, in parts of the Cape. Similarly, uh, with a faction, with a tiny party that has now got the deputy mayor of Durban, or uh, Etiqueni rather, with only two seats in the two proportional representative seats. That looks real messy to me.
8: It does. And it's the danger, you know, are we going to learn through this process of coalitions or is it going to remain unstable? And I think that the next few months are probably going to be unstable um, as as the coalitions settle down and as um, parties shift because um there are no formal agreements that are behind the um uh, voting for mayors and speakers uh, that have happened and that is concerning but i think that what has also happened is that the EFF, amongst others have realized that its politics of um sort of destructive politics have cost at the at the vote, at the ballot um, every with every election, the EFF runs into a ceiling of 10, 12 percent and hasn't been able to break out of it. Now, Malema's action plan is quite evident. He's trying to support the RAT faction within the ANC so that that can splinter off and then join forces with the EFF and maybe push him a little bit higher. But it's as if South African voters um, don't believe that the EFF is a viable governing party uh, at a national level. So, uh, the EFF is struggling. The problem that we face, um, is that, um, low growth, uh, mediocre growth feeds into their storyline. And in the meanwhile, turning South Africa's growth trajectory around, which is slowly happening, is constrained by ESCOM and by all the, um, by the impact of the ANC's poor, and corrupt governance, which we've seen for, for several years now, well, under Jacob Zuma. Things have, are turning around under Ramaphosa, but it's a, low, a slow and a long road.
1: Yaki, when you have a look at the results of the local elections, people are taking it very much on face value, and they don't seem to be bringing into account the fact that many ANC voters just stayed away. They didn't vote for other parties. There was a, a, a net Decline in the number of votes that were cast. Is this something that, in the long game, getting back to the leader of the ANC, the president of of the country, that he'll be working towards to bring that vote out in 2024?
8: I think everybody is fighting for that that exact vote, Alec. Um, It can benefit the ANC, but if um, an alliance or individual. Um, opposition parties like Action SA manage to mobilize that vote, they can grow very strongly. Maybe even the the DA could do that, but um, there would have to be significant change within the the leadership and the orientation of the party to achieve that. But that's what they're all fighting for. And uh, at the moment, uh, that stay away vote has huge potential to perhaps turn a party like Action SA into a, a truly national party But then we would have to see action by Action SA. And I'm not sure that um, a party that grows that rapidly would be able to deliver. Um, And it's also quite evident, Alec, I think that both the EFF and the DA have in a sense ganged up against the Action SA because they threaten threaten both those parties um, and and effectively kept them out of, of too much influence.
9: I'm Chris Bateman for Business Radio. And my guest today is a top legal consultant, Elsevier Klink. She's a former legal advisor to the SA Medical Association and the Foundation for Professional Development. Welcome, Elsie I uh, want you to help us unpack the context and the legal situation around mandatory vaccination. It seems the government, through the National Department of Health, has opted to create an enabling environment through verifiable vaccine certificates for employers to conditionally insist on workers being vaccinated for COVID-19. And many corporates whose business models require people to be in the office are gearing up to introduce vaccine mandates as soon as possible. What do people need to know, given that South Africa's top bioethicists argue that the vaccine mandates are morally and legally justifiable and based on the common good? Now, that puts the hackles up on a lot of anti-vaxxers. But what's needed, it seems, is finding that difficult balance between individual rights and the public good.
0: Definitely. And that is exactly what our constitution does. Our constitution has a weighing up of rights because my right to, for example, not be vaccinated can affect somebody else's right of access to healthcare. It can affect somebody else's right to life or my right to say I've got a religion that says I can't do this. Our constitution has a limitation clause. And that limitation clause is vitally important. So people say, I've got a freedom, I've got a right. In our constitution, we need to say which freedom and which right do you have. And then bear in mind that that right and that freedom can be limited. But it's not somebody's discretion who limits it. We have to find laws that authorize that limitation. And we've got two laws that actually authorize it. So the first law is the Occupational Health and Safety Act. And that's an old law. It's 1993. So actually the year before we became a democracy, we have this law that in Section 8 makes it mandatory for employers to protect their employees. And it's on that basis that for example you cannot enter a construction site without a hard hat okay even if i don't like it and you know it messes with my hair and my freedom to have an open head i still have to do that so it's nothing strange in employment settings that we require of people to take steps that may be uncomfortable. I mean, the guys wear these heavy boots in summer. It is absolutely horrible. But we can do that, and we actually must do it as employers because we must take steps to protect not only that individual but also other people in that workplace. It is a social responsibility.
9: So is there more, is there another law? Yes, there's another
0: law. It's in the Employment Equity Act, and that's more recent. That's a 1998 act that came into effect in 1999. And it says if there is, for certain jobs, it is not discriminatory to differentiate between people if that differentiator is an inherent requirement for the job. So for example, currently, what we do with nurses in hospitals, they must have hepatitis vaccine. Another example, if we fly into other African countries and we come back, we must have a yellow fever vaccination. So it is an inherent requirement of the job. You can't do your job correctly and safely if you don't have that particular thing and that's a more modern law it's part of employment equity and the the actual wording in the access it is not unfair discrimination to differentiate between people on an inherent requirement of the job
9: people listening will probably think well okay a ceo or a manager will think well having heard all that under what circumstances can i fire somebody for refusing to be vaccinated They have to jump through certain hoops before they can do that. And what are those hoops?
0: And that's really, really important because you can dismiss somebody because they cannot currently or they can no longer fulfill an inherent requirement of the job because it's part of the operations. For example, I've got medical device clients. Their reps go into theater. To go into theatre, you can't pose a health risk to the patient or the other people in the hospital. So one can fire somebody because they can no longer do the job because an inherent requirement is not being fulfilled. Under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, one can also dismiss people. And there's, there's actually heaps of case law in South Africa on whether dismissal on things like religion or health or a particular requirement that we put on people is fair or not and it will be deemed to be fair if we can rely on these legal principles but we have to follow a fair process and this is i think where it is now getting crunch time because we don't have a lot of time to consult and labor law wants us to talk to people to listen Mm, to people mm. to give them access to the right information we were involved in a particular case where We had to lie haze and listen to a preacher from one of the more non-South African big churches. And you have to go through those processes. So you have to give people an opportunity. You need to make it easy for them to get vaccinated. Two weeks ago, we dealt with somebody who said because they're in a fairly outlying rural area, what they do is they don't get the vaccines like up front, like us here in the city, People queue and they count, oh, there's 15 people. And then they go and they make sure they, they fetch the for 15 people. They bring that back. And by then, half the day is gone. And then when the 15 people now are seven people. <laughs> so there are practical things we need to make it easy for people to get vaccinated. You have to do all of that consult, explain. Myth-busting is important. Role modeling is important. And after you've done all of that, you can start your usual disciplinary processes. So, And then you need to, in that process, give the person an opportunity to present evidence. In some of the cases that we've been involved, people said it is for medical reasons. When we then ask, what is the medical proof, they couldn't provide anything. So this is also important. People can't just say things and think, because I'm saying it, that makes it valid. I need to be able to prove it. So if I say it's a religious thing, you can't just, only this vaccine is a problem. Other vaccines is not a problem. Um, you need to be able to prove it's a key tenet of that religion, or it is a key aspect of medicine that you cannot get the COVID vaccine if you have a particular condition. And I must say, this far in all the cases that we've been involved with, on neither of those could people provide us with substantiated religious reasons or with substantiated medical reasons.
9: People coming onto your premises, the same kind of thing applies. I mean, an employer, you can... If really, you could perhaps make a plan, um, so well, perhaps you can work at home, and if they still refuse, then you, you, it takes you further down the line there's more strength to your arm. But people coming onto your premises to buy your products, what's the situation there?
0: One can require of people to say that they must be vaccinated, and one can, can require proof of that. And the reason for that lies in the Occupational Health and Safety Act. So the Occupational Health and Safety Act does not only apply to the employees and the employer. It applies to any person who visits the premise. And there's a duty on the employer to make sure the staff and everybody is safe. The same if their employees go out into a hospital, into another setting, they, for example, a rep or whatever, they need to make sure that the, not only the employees in that workplace, but anybody who visits it is safe. And that duty is in Section 19 of the Occupational Health and Safety Act. And it carries criminal sanction. People are absolutely entitled to say that, and I'm doing so. If I here at our office say we are not allowing unvaccinated people, I'm doing that to protect my staff. Some of them have got children that are immunocompromised and have got asthma and conditions that would make them prone to to severe COVID. One would have to be, I have to consider that. It's my duty under the Occupational Health and Safety Act.
10: How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us hospitals that care for us and the tools that shape our cities and by backing the next generation of business owners that's why south africa banks on business business banks on us standard bank it can be standard bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider t's and c's apply
1: david williams Something that I came across that you wrote recently was for the Brenthurst Foundation on the passenger rail service. It's a really good uh, paper that you put together, given what's going on there at the moment with Mr. Josie Matthews. What's the real purpose of putting a, a research a paper together like well,
10: that? Well, I, th- I think like you, Alec, I've been fortunate in my work to be able to follow my interests. So as a journalist for most of my career at Financial Mail, I was able to take an interest in railways because it's an interest of mine. Education and the military are another two interests, and politics, elections in particular. So I, I suppose I've got a bit of a name as someone who knows about railways and my friends know. And Greg Mills of the foundation, the director of the Brenthurst Foundation, he was driving to Cape Town. And he, when he got back, he said to me, I didn't see a train the whole way, driving through the Karoo, where the train goes alongside the road for many, many kilometres He said, why are there no trains? Why are there so many trucks on the road and not enough trains? Essentially, I set out to answer that question. And it's a perfect storm, as that now cliche phrase goes. There's a governance problem. There's corruption issues. There's policy issues. In other words, splitting passenger rail from freight rail as a matter of policy. Why did they do that? And the effects that that's had. The lack of security. The lawlessness, the theft of uh, railway infrastructure, the loss of market share. And everyone says, oh, well, they'll fix the trains and the passengers will come back. Well, not so easy because uh, the taxis and the buses and whatever else people use to get to work, that will in due course take the place of the trains. At the moment, there are no suburban trains running or very, very few in the country. And that's down from millions of passenger journeys 10, 15 years ago. It is a complete disaster. It's the equivalent of the lights being out. If you're looking at Eskom, to the transport sector, the rail transport sector, it's as if load shedding is there all the time.
1: As something that's not affecting the, the writing classes, there are not too many media people who get on a train, so as a consequence... It wouldn't be that important to them. And it it just seems to have been completely off the radar of the public discourse until this past week when Josie Matthews was placed on gardening leave as the head of Praza. And now we discover he was brought in there earlier this year to fix the place, but appears to have perhaps bumped into issues that are going to prevent him from ever fixing the place. I was under the impression that a state owned enterprise fell under Pravin Gordon, but was disabused of that idea. Passenger Rail Agency falls under the Minister of Transport, which seems rather strange.
10: Well, the first, <laughs> there's a question behind your question that is, why is there a Department of Public Enterprises? I mean, ESCOM could arguably be allocated to energy. Uh, all the railways and airways and everything should be allocated to transport. So there's no reason for the Department of Public Enterprises except that there is a department. But in the rail sector, the problem is, and this happened in the early 2000s, I think not with the best of intentions, with probably advice from fancy, expensive consultants from England, they separated the passenger rail from the freight rail. So Transnet Freight Rail became a separate entity which reports to the Minister of Public Enterprises, Transnet. And PRASA, or before it was called the Commuter Rail Corporation, reports to the Minister of Transport. So before we even start, there is a clash there because in many cases they use the same track, they use the same equipment. Uh, It was a built integrated system and it was split. So that's the first problem. There's a governance problem. And I know from my contacts with some of the engineers who are trying to fix what's gone wrong, there is very little communication between PRASA and Transnet. Another um, senior person within the organisation has said, everyone in Transnet he's talking about, I think the same applies to PRASA, is terrified to do anything. They've had two or three layers of experience taken off, partly because of hunting down corruption and partly because everything's been sort of washed out with the corruption clean And managers sit in offices not sure what to do, inexperienced and unable to take decisions. So you don't have to be corrupt to be incompetent. uh, And it's simply a question of the way things are managed. To talk about Mr. Matthews, he's a a struggle. He comes from a struggle family, uh, Big, good credentials, I think in the broad sense well qualified. What he knew or knows about railways and passenger railways is not clear to me. But And I'm not saying, therefore, he is not the person for the job. But they have now suspended him on the grounds that he has dual citizenship with the UK. And that's apparently a function of when he was in exile, he took British citizenship. And that this was described as a security risk. And Alec, you want to say, do you think we're stupid? Just because he has two passports, he's become a security risk to passenger rail in South Africa. What can this mean? So immediately you say, what's behind this? They're trying to nail him for something else, but they can't. So again, as you say, the, the, the media classes, the chattering classes, don't take much interest in this because they do not generally travel by train. It's the poor who travel by commuter trains. Didn't used to be. Middle class used to travel. Uh, now it's the poor, the people who can't afford anything else or have no other transport. So now this is another crippling blow to prices. They've had something like... 10 chief executives in 12 years, mostly acting appointments. No one can do anything. Uh, So Mr. Matthews, whatever his qualifications, he seems to have been suspended on spurious grounds. Maybe uh, he's done something which has upset people. Maybe he has done something he shouldn't have done genuinely, and they're trying to get him out. But it just is a symptom of a badly governed, badly organized, poorly stewarded in terms of policy organization and it is a wreck this company is a wreck if it was a private sector company it would be beyond business rescue it would just simply not be functioning
1: so david what is the the most logical thing that cyril should be doing
10: first thing is you've got to secure your infrastructure And one of the problems here is that people say, oh, the ANC government has wrecked the railways. It's not the case. This started back in the 1970s when the road transport sector was deregulated without thought of how do we keep the right traffic on the rails. Uh, Again, poor governance, and this is the old National Party uh, doing things. Again, not necessarily with bad intentions, uh, but with bad effects. So what's happened is we've got Uh, The railway police, which was an institution of some 16,000 people, men and women, who they used to guard this massive infrastructure, patrol, arrest, convict, and so on. Under the, the PW Berta government, they were short of police, South African police, and they amalgamated the railway's police with the South African police. And the result was that the railways were no longer policed, And it didn't take long for the criminal syndicates to realize that there was all this juicy infrastructure just waiting to be stolen or vandalized or wrecked, which is what's happened, particularly in the last 20 years. Alec, if you go around uh, Gauteng, there are 480 kilometers approximately of suburban railway line. That's the passenger railway line. Almost all of that, the overhead equipment, the electrical wires that feed the current to the locomotives, is gone. Most of the suburban stations look like bomb sites except the rubble has been removed. Uh, Stations look as if they have been dug up uh, for some other purpose. In Cape Town, there are uh, 2,000 people approximately living on the tracks. And Prasa can't get them off the tracks despite court orders so that they can start running trains again. Just to talk about the overhead equipment, the electrical overhead equipment, OHE as they call it in the business, it's just gone, most of it. Uh, It's going to cost at least half a billion rand per kilometre to restore it. Now, that's just the overhead wires, not the station infrastructure, not the fences. There's a whole lot more. Now, the Minister of Transport uh, for Kilian They talk about fixing things by next year. I cannot see just on the back of a cigarette box, if you look at what has to be done, how they can possibly do it by next year. One engineer I spoke to said if they had one team working on this, it would take 15 years to fix throughout the country. Now, he says, obviously, they're going to try and have more teams than that. But there's a lot of money that has to be spent just to get things back to where they were before. Meanwhile, all the carriages have been sitting in the, in the yards, rusting, not looked after, not maintained. The tracks, track needs to be maintained. They're like roads. If the ballast gets silted up, washaways will wash the track away. In many places, we are one of the very few countries in the world where the gangs actually steal railway lines, uh, not just equipment around the railway lines, but the railway lines themselves. So there's an enormous, very expensive job here The two organizations running rail are not really speaking to each other, as far as we can see. It's very difficult to get comment out of them. I'm doing another report on Southern African rail, more generally, and it's very difficult to get the South Africans to comment. Namibia, very helpful. Zambia, very helpful. Angola, there are people in place talking for all these countries. In South Africa, this is not the case. And the danger is we're going to be bypassed as a Southern African rail uh, entity, whereas we should have been uh, the leader. And I haven't even spoken about the corruption. So you can see that that has crippled the railways in its own way. Just the corruption alone would have had an effect, but you add it to these other things, it's a disaster.
1: Well, thanks for being with us this Monday, the 29th of November. We'll be back again, same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, cheerio.